gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very exciting day today. We have um, a, 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 uh, I was going to say a very old friend, but that's not fair. A longtime friend, uh, um, um, former colleague for years and years, uh, someone I first met in the mid-90s, uh, a recent contributor to the, uh, to the Dispatch, which we were very pleased with. Um, he's a senior editor at National Review. Uh, he's uh, at least still the music critic for the new Criterion. Um, and he is uh, has a peripatetic mind um, that wanders the globe, um, sometimes literally. It <laughs> means I can't concentrate. <laughs> and uh, uh, Jay Nordlinger, welcome to The Remnant. Thank you, Jonah. I'm full of complaints already. <laughs> uh, first of all, minor linguistic matter. This is sort of a debate in English. What is a colleague? Is it a coworker? Are you on the same payroll? Or is it something, uh, uh, two people in a field? Because I'd like to consider you a colleague. Fair, so, you know, pe- fair. Pe- it's funny you mentioned this because when I taught English in Prague, all the students had learned English from British textbooks. And so if you were an ice cream scooper, you referred to your colleagues at the ice cream shop, which always struck my ear like a spoon yeah. banging off my forehead. It's like, that's, <laughs> like they're your coworkers. They're, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say coworkers. Yeah, yeah. So but, there's something about, uh, I, I, I take your point. There's something in the American English that colleagues suggests a peer in a certain field, maybe? Yeah. Uh, carpenters may be colleagues of one another, all the carpenter, carpenters in the world, or, I don't know, orthopedic surgeons. Uh, so this, is, this question came up at National Review a, a, a few months ago. Um, it's not important. Also probably think... like 45 years ago, we just don't know about it, because it seems <laughs> it's a very National Review question to come up. Mm, you know? Mm, true, uh, true. I can't imagine that Bill Buckley didn't have opinions on this issue. I think I might have met you in the earlier 90s. Uh, you were a whippersnapper, I think, working at AEI for Ben Wattenberg. Yes, when you first showed up at um, the Standard. Uh, we had lunch in the Scholar Dining Room, I remember. That. And it was at that lunch, speaking of lexicological... But, uh, but, but, hang on, hang on, hang on, uh-huh. John. I met you before, my friend. Really? I met you before, yes. I, I, I met you at, I, at two years, I think, before the Standard began. Yeah, and you were terribly, you were, you were just as you are now. Exactly. Yeah. Thinner. I would like to say thinner, but yeah, okay, mm. fair. Yeah. Um. In, 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 in essence, <laughs> you, you were Jonah Goldberg. So I like to say I was, I was not just present at the creation, I was present before the creation, really. And uh, so I was a fan before it was cool. Um, I appreciate that. Because um, I was going to say at that lunch, uh, see, you, you may not know this, I have a, I have, a, I have a fatwa against all compliments to me on this podcast because I come from a long Jewish tradition of thinking all compliments are mm, bad luck. Yeah, I, 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 but, I'm the same on my podcast, but in your SOL today because I'm the guest. Fair enough, you know, fair enough. Yeah. And, and I could never get you to do what I wanted. Anyway, so, but I remember that lunch we had, and I was a very embarrassed to be as shocked to discover this because I considered myself a proud New Yorker. But this was 
if I mean, I, I think technically Al Gore had already invented the internet, but it really wasn't a household thing yet. Mm-mm. And I had said something about how I had waited online at the movie theater or the supermarket or something. Oh, yeah. And you said, you're from New York, aren't you? And I, and I said, yeah. And he says, yeah, because only New Yorkers say waited online rather than in line. And, and now it, it's, it's, I'm like, I literally think of you every single time I have to make that distinction in my head. Um, and then I, I get filled with rage and, and punch old ladies in the face or something. I, 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 I'm, I'm glad to have made a difference, I, I, I think. But yeah, it's, it's a giveaway. It, it, it's a tell. I think of all English speakers, not just in the United States, but New Zealand, anywhere you want to name, I think only New Yorkers say they wait online. Huh. I, I got to get, I gotta get McCor- uh, McWhorter back on here and ask him about it. So uh, since we're on words, and obviously you will, I think you will attest that we did zero planning for this podcast in terms of what we would talk about. But you're, you're a fellow... Uh, logophile. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Now, the, the, the question went straight out of my head. This never happens. Well, actually, it happens quite often, but usually not when I'm recording. It had something to do with words. Yeah, no, it definitely had something to do with words. Um, so it'll come back in the middle of some talk about human rights or something like that. And yeah, fine. It'll be embarrassing. So um, why don't we start with um, something that you wrote for us? Uh, just seems like good manners. And... Um, hmm. And it was a great piece, and I was delighted that you would write for us uh, about this Saudi Arabia uh, golf league tournament thing. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so when do we start with what is sports washing? Well, it relates to the term whitewashing, and it's to sort of launder your reputation by support of sports. You know, so you host sports, you pay for sports, you make nice with sports, and it perf- perfumes your dictatorship a bit. So the PRC has attempted to do this with Olympics a couple of different times. Uh, the Saudis uh, own a, a soccer team, as you and I would say as Americans in, in Britain, uh, I think a Premier League club, Newcastle. And now they're doing this golf a tour, and uh, the the common expression is sports washing. It derives from whitewashing to make a whitewash of something. Um, and see, we are doing words. We are doing words. I know. I'm, yeah. I'm so embarrassed. I, I, mm. Arguably, the greatest single lexicological question in human history completely got plucked out of my brain. <laughs> I, I'm so interested to know what it is. I know. Was it Groucho who would say, what's the secret word? It's very, <laughs> it was, it's very frustrating and it, it's, it's casting a pall over me. It's, it's, and it wasn't whether or not it is true that Nordlinger is in fact a uh, Finnish uh, fishing lure <laughs> for Lutfisk. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, what is Nordlinger, by the way? It's. I, I know I've asked you this. It, 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 it depends on who's asking. Um, <laughs> there is a, a, a city in Bavaria called uh, Nödlingen in German, and a person of the city would be uh, Nödlinger. And okay. as I understand it, my Nödlinger forebears were penned up in the ghetto outside the city. Anyway, it's like Berliner or Frankfurter or uh, something like that. It is a, a demonym. Um, like Romano, I could have sworn you had more like Scandinavian in you or something. Well, like that's that, what people but, it sounds that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I, I, I usually I don't bother to I don't pause to disabuse people, but it all depends on context. Right. No, that's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
harmless mistakes if they're if if correcting them are more embarrassing than yeah um uh so I, lord knows what my friends have let me just get away with saying without correcting <laughs> me um and, and hang a little more on the subject Joan, if you don't mind because yeah. it's semi-interesting um so there was an umlaut over the o and, and it ought to be replaced by an e and there are such nordlingers including rachel nordlinger longtime spokesman for al sharpton <laughs> Later worked for Bill de Blasio, wonderful woman. We're friends. Uh, she was adopted by a couple in New Mexico named Nordlinger O.E. And then there are Nordlingers N.O. But there are also people named N.E.R.D. And uh, Nordlinger. And uh, I'm glad that, uh, you that, my, that little, my, my little... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, w- I was raised believing that they made us change our name in at like Ellis Island from uh, the family name, which I do know was Stavskowski, uh to Goldberg. Uh, turns out it's more complicated than that. We came over prior to like the Ellis Island wave, different, different pogrom sent mm-hmm. us here. And, um, um, and it turns out I, I, I once had this stuff, a better command of, of this stuff, but all the Greenbergs, Goldbergs, uh, most of them changed their name on their own rather than had the Leviathan hmm. state force them to. Um, and some of it had to do with um, uh, the fact that they were, that tragic as it is to say this, there was a time where if you were Jewish, you wanted to make it to Germany. Um, and it was a way to sort of assimilate into German culture was to have a German sounding um, name is, is there not a, a, a fancy pen called Mondor? Sounds right. I think there is. Yeah, yeah. Goldberg, uh, and uh, David Price. Uh, uh, David Price Jones taught me something that um, you know. There's a beautiful aristocratic name in France, Montfleury, and a beautiful aristocratic name in Italy, Montefiore, and they're all Bloomberg's. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it's, those are the French and Italian ways of saying Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, just because I, I don't want it to leave it out there like Chekhov's gun, uh, you wrote this piece for us about Saudi Arabia and this golf league, and um, yeah. um, and I think you make the. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. It, it, the question of Saudi Arabia is is one of these ones that I find. So you make the case. I mean, you can make it yourself, but you, you make the case that. This whole thing is problematic. It's basically just they're throwing gobs of money at brand name, mostly over the hill golfers to sort of uh, hide behind the skirts of um, golf. I should say the kilts of golf um, (laughs) um, in in order to obscure the fact that it's a pretty monstrous regime as regimes go. Um, Not I would argue not as monstrous as, say, North Korea or even China, but like. This is one few, of my great few places I've ever been. Yeah. yeah, it's one of my great peeves in the way we talk about things. That if I say someone isn't as bad as Hitler, they think I'm defending them. Um, you know, it used to be that you could come up pretty far short of being Hitler and <laughs> still be a bad guy. You know, <laughs> um, he's a high bar, baby. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, but that's the problem in our culture. Maximums become minimums, right? So, like, if you don't say someone is the worst evil ever then you're saying they're okay, you know? And like, you know, so my standard joke, which, you know, Michael Brendan Doherty likes to uh, uh, repeat, giving me credit, which is, you know, Trump, you know, Trump's not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. 
Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't make Hitler, it doesn't make <laughs> Trump a great president or a fit president or a good person, but he's not Hitler, you know. And um, but regardless, the Saudis are a pretty monstrous regime. My problem is, as you know, uh, I'm fairly idealistic in foreign policy about ends, but not necessarily about means. And the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia is one of those ones that troubles me in part because it's one of the few places where I feel the, the ping of realpolitik kick in a little bit. Um, I mean, what do you think our relationship should be with Saudi Arabia? None at all? Well, uh, uh, for, first, a couple of things. Um, it, when it comes to dictatorships and, and other things, I'm not much of a ranker. You know, uh, people love to rank. Mm -hmm. And uh, I say that um, I had a dear professor who said, it really doesn't matter whether the boot is black or red. Right. It's stamping on the human face, and that's what counts. So, you know. Or if it's a sandal in this context, but yeah. I, I I'm anti-dictatorship. And uh, I remember someone asked in an interview, I think on television, Robert Conquest, you know, who was worse, Hitler or Stalin, or, or Stalin's regime or the Third Reich, and he said, Hitler... And uh, his interviewer said, why do you say that? And Bob answered an amazing answer for someone so intellectual and yeah. rational and logical. He said, I feel it so. Yeah. Another thing, whenever I write about um, issues such as the Saudi Golf League, um, no offense, Jonah, but people want to go immediately to government-to-government -government relations, mm -hmm. immediately mm -hmm. to foreign policy. Happy to talk about that. But it doesn't have much to do with the Saudi Golf League or the Premier Club. Uh, so this is what I say. Uh, these are individuals uh, doing business, so to speak, with the Saudis. It's not governmental. It's not a matter of foreign policy. Uh, I am a realist, and you hold your nose uh, in foreign relations, and you lock arms with monsters sometimes, as we did in uh, in World War II. Uh, with Stalin, you make decisions out of out of interest and so on. But we're talking about private life, right? And uh, so Jared Kushner has this. Speaking of private, private equity firm, I think there's $2.5 billion in capital and $2 billion comes from the Saudis. Um, uh, Elon Musk earlier this year uh, opened uh, a, a Tesla showroom and office in Xinjiang right. in, in China, where the Uyghurs are being herded into concentration camps. And uh, according to the U.S. State Department, the Chinese government is committing genocide against the Uyghurs. Um, now, I certainly think that the United States ought to have relations with the People's Republic of China, but Elon Musk is the richest man in the world. He doesn't need a showroom yeah. in Xinjiang. Yeah. And, and, and Phil Mickelson doesn't need to be doing this, uh, which was my point, mm -hmm. or one, 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 one of my points. And uh, my view in a nutshell of this damn league is I am pro-market, I'm pro-competition, I'm anti-monopolistic you know, let 100 golf tours bloom or whatever. What I object to is the Saudi money. And when you say this, you sound like such an ass. And this has never stopped me before. But um, I'll just say it. Um, this is a horrible, jerk-like thing to say. I just know so damn much about Saudi Arabia. <laughs> uh, and and, and uh, David Sada wrote a book about... Uh, uh, Putin's Russia, and I believe 2016 called The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep. And to people wondering, you remember how um, uh, President Trump said all those glowing things about 
Kim Jong-un mm-hmm. and people like Linda Chavez and me went nuts. And one, re- and again, this is jerk-like to say, we used to know so much about yeah. the North Korean regime. And I've sat with so many defectors, SKPs, and so on. And if you, you just, you, it just, it'll drive you around the bend if, if, if you know enough. And I've written about a lot of Saudi political prisoners and I've sat with their relatives and I rebel. I, I, I am repulsed. And so what I object to is the Saudi aspect, not, not a competing tour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, your point about automatically going to government and government relations, this is a very good one. You know, um, like I would, you know, like would not take money for a speech from the Chinese government or the, you know, the, um, you know, the, the Riyadh tourist council or any of these kinds of things. It doesn't mean that I think the government should have to prevent people from able to give speeches in Riyadh. It just like personally, as a matter of conscience, I don't want blood money, you know? And I think that's a very good point. Um, I do have to ask you, I believe there are people who argue that the proper pronunciation of golf is goff. <laughs> and you're, are you doing that because you have a Michigander accent or are you doing that because you are, you are tipping your cap to the Scots? What, Cause it sounds like you're not pronouncing the L very strongly or at all. When you say golf, I want to tell you a story, Jonah, my sister, Heather married a man named W O L F. And my niece and nephew, their children, grew up in Long Island at the end of the North Fork, near the end of the North Fork, in a, in a village of Greenport. So I talk like a Michigander, so does my mother, a native Michigander, and these kids don't. They think it is hilar- hilarious that their grandmother and uncle say woof without an L. <laughs> they think it's hilarious. But to me, there is no L in woof, in goth in folk. And I've argued with my niece and nephew for so long. And I have all sorts of jokes like, you know, we've been talking about this for years and years. Let's just chalk it up to a difference of opinion. (laughs) And, you know, I'll meet you at half time. In the meantime, enjoy your egg yolks. You know, I just, so, so this, this is, this is what I talk to them. But yeah, I say golf and I never knew it was weird till I left home. Yeah. Well, I didn't know about it online until, you know, I left home. So these things happen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, have you taken that, you must've taken that New York times interactive thing that, um, you answer a bunch of questions and it can narrow down where you come from. Have you taken this thing? I think I might have Jonah. I can't remember. I think I did. So it got me basically within five blocks of where I grew up. (laughs) Um, it, it completely missed my wife because I think Alaskans, there's just, there's probably just not enough data, you know? Mm, um, mm-hmm. And, um, and Alaska is so recent as a state. I think they're too, sort of like, there's a, like people always used to ask, they don't ask me anymore, but people used to ask me, how come you don't have a New York accent? And there are a couple words every now and then where it might come out, but for the most part, I, I don't have one. And part of the answer to that is that Manhattan kind of has the American equivalent of, of a BBC English kind of thing going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. and the accents are all in the outer boroughs. Um, and, um, because everyone's parents basically come from someplace else. If you live in Manhattan, mm. um, mm-hmm. and I think Alaska, the whole state is like that. I mean, the number of actual sourdoughs who predate it becoming a state is very small. 
And oh, so you, I, I never knew that term. Yeah. The, oh, sourdough means mean, you, yeah means you were there. It means sabra. I guess that's right. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah. <laughs> so um, that's why you'll see if you drive. And I know you've been to Alaska a bunch because I used to be on those same cruises with you. Um, and you'll see all sorts of places called, you know, sourdough bakery, sourdough car wash, sourdough this, sourdough that. Oh, and it's, huh. it's, it's, it's the term for people from, I mean, maybe I don't think Alaskans just call, use it normally now, but uh, my understanding is what it was used for, for the pioneer generation. So, I mean, I guess we should move on to like the rank punditry portion of this podcast. Um, uh, I love that phrase. Um, I'm, I've tried very hard to popularize it. Um, yeah, I, I figured you had coined it. I believe I coined it. Uh, yeah. I, um, but, you know, uh, sometimes you have to let go of ownership of some phrases if you really yeah. want them to take over, take off. They, they, they belong to the world. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, Jonah, what is rank punditry? I mean, I like the phrase, but I'm, I, I'm not sure yeah, I know exactly I, what the. So, like, you know, I, you know, the remnant is this sort of high-minded, you know, supposed to be sort of it's a philosophical illusion. Albert J. Nock and and the Book of Isaiah and and we do you know we do eggheadery here quite a bit and and so for even before uh, that wrong, I, wrong guest for that baby. <laughs> like, <laughs> I I use I mean I've I've used rank punditry for. I don't know, 20 years, but the, the gist of it is basically just to like, to just lean into the cliches of inside the beltway. Let's talk about the exit polls, you know, and oh, God, like, I gotcha. Yeah. No yeah, high mindedness right. yeah. to it whatsoever. And yeah, and, so I'm, I'm David Gergen today. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and, and, okay. and I, I don't think there's actually anything pejorative about it. No, and, no unless no, no, you, no. unless there are people, there are people who invest in rank punditry significance beyond it. It's, it's the reality. But that doesn't mean for what it is. I mean, it's like rank sports analysis, you know, where you're just doing the straight numbers without any poetry to it or any higher, you know, meaning. And, you know, that's, anyway, that's what I mean by it, at least. But again, it's a, it's my gift. It's one of my gifts to the world. So who knows? Um, <laughs> so I, I wrote this column for the L.A. Times. It'll be up at the dispatch uh, manana. Um, as you know, um, as well as I do, that. Um, you know, Reagan used to go around with his, uh, with, you know, calling the conservative movement, the Republican Party, a three-legged stool. The legs of the stool, there's some play in what people meant by them. But for the most part, it was a strong national defense, which basically, it, which basically meant in practice anti-communism. Very briefly, war on terror. Um, uh, the, another leg was free market economics. Um, which in theory meant all the good stuff, Adam Smith and Milton Friedman, but in practice really kind of meant low taxes and a pro-business kind of thing. And then the third one was the sort of social conservatism or cultural conservatism. And there are a lot of different, you know, things that were lumped in there. Um, um, many of which have fallen by the wayside, one could argue, but the one enduring one until last Friday was, uh, the pro-life cause. Mm. And um, I wrote this column, not, this was not wishful thinking on my part. It makes me sad in many ways, but um, I think, I think the decision was correct. It was persuasive on the four corners of the page. I have some sympathy for Justice Roberts's aversion to the, the shock to the system that this will cause. But I think he kind of came down the right way, which was that uh, he argued in a sort of a Burkean way for a more incrementalist ruling, but if forced to choose between the right answer and the wrong answer, he chose the right answer. 
Um, all that said, you know, one of the things a lot of people in politics, or at least in sort of activism, sometimes fail to understand is that winning can be really bad for the cause. And I'm curious what you think. I mean, we're now, the pro-life issue is alive and it's going to thrive for a while, but you can already see it balkanizing. The people who were yes. pro, yes. who were in favor of, uh, the, pe the people who were in favor of overturning Roe and sending it back to the states are one broad camp, right? And there are different tribes within that. And then there's the camp that says, no, 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 it's life begins at conception and we should have a federal ban on abortion. And what were once a sort of united fusionist cause, you can now see those two tribes pulling apart in different ways. And so I'm wondering, you know, just what did you think of the decision? What, what do you think of the stool? Are there, are there even stumps left to it? Mm -hmm. um, and what do you think, <laughs> what, what's going to look, uh, how, are, how is this issue going to look in five years, do you think? Hmm. Take any and all where, of those. Where, yeah, where do you see yourself in five years, Jay? How <laughs> <laughs> if I know? Um, Jonah, that is so interesting. I look forward to reading that column. I never miss one, by the way. Please don't edit this out. And I also consider the G-Files columns, but, you know, it's just vocabulary. Uh, first, a semi-funny story. I once referred in a piece to the uh, then-governor of New Mexico, Susana Martinez, as a full-service conservative or full-service Republican, I can't remember. And Kevin Williamson was really tickled by that formulation. He liked it. But the thing is, I just made a mistake. I forgot the phrase full-spectrum conservative. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an S word, and I was meaning to... Yeah, and it's so interesting. Um, we won't belabor this now, because I know we have other fish to fry, but um, it, this has been the subject, I think, many Goldberg columns and books and so on. And I've written a few columns, but it's interesting that you... Uh, described uh, Roberts as conservative or, or Burkean because he is so conservative, but, but, but in a sense of that word that doesn't really relate to the American right. Um, I used to drive people crazy by saying that David Cameron, the prime minister of Britain, was basically the definition of a conservative. The right hated him. Yeah. But Edmund Burke would have adored him. He was incrementalist, gradualist, reformist, you know, you know steady hand at the wheel, that sort of thing. So very, very interesting. Uh, and so, do you remember this phrase we all used, or so many of us used, Jonah, at the time Republicans succeeded in overturning Obamacare? The dog has caught the car. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now the rubber has hit the road, uh, sticking with cars on the road. And so, uh, what to do? I'm so pleased with the decision. Uh, so very pleased. Uh, Roe versus Wade was a great stain and, and error. And I am a conservative, and I like continuity and stare decisis and all that stuff to a point. But I think gross errors ought to be corrected. And this was one. I'll tell you a story from 1988. I was a big-time Republican. I loved the presidential primary field. I liked four or five guys in it, including Al Haig. <laughs> and I adored Pete DuPont. Absolutely adored him. And But I was a little cross at him on the subject of abortion, because it seemed to me he dodged. He wouldn't say abortion was bad. He might have had a pro-choice record in Delaware, I can't remember. But he said, you know, kick it back to the states. I believe in federalism. I was a governor. Take this issue out of Washington, away from the Supreme Court. This is judicial fiat. Restore it to the states, the 50 states, where the issue belongs. Let the states do what they will. I didn't like this. And I'm still a little, pardon the 
modern psychological term, conflicted. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I do. I, I I thought the Dobbs decision was glorious and necessary, and this return of the issue to the states is a big, big advance from a, a pro-life or anti-abortion point of view. By the way, the older I get, the more I dislike euphemisms: pro-life, pro-choice. I use them for convenience. I'm happy to be called anti-abortion. Mm-hmm. So big, big advance. But didn't we have a civil war? And and you know, and I don't want states deciding on slavery or you know civil rights in general. I th- I think this is a matter of uh, national policy and national values. So I, you know, states' rights, sure. You know, fifty laboratories, sure. But there are some issues that. So here I am, a bit conflicted. Uh, on, on, in, in, in the political sphere, so interesting what you say about the conservative movement, to use a shorthand, because I think I, I've been saying for a few years, what binds us? If it, well, first of all, we're anti-left. Uh, and George Will says that's the first thing a conservative is, is anti-left. Uh, but also an American conservative seeks to uh, conserve or preserve the American founding. Um, Robbie George says it's the job of the American conservative to defend the liberal tradition. They said, what do we have that in common? We're anti-PC, or I think we say wokeness now, Mm -hmm. and we're anti-abortion by and large. But this point you make about becoming or maybe even beginning balkanization is so very interesting, so very Interesting. Well, let me give you an analogy because uh, you, mm, you, yeah. you, you're, you're, you know this history well. Pappy Cannon, I, I've been quoting him for so long. My editor at the LA Times was like, "Can you give me a link to where he said this?" And I was like, I don't, "I've been quoting him saying this for like 25 years." Um, but um, and so I Google it and I just find columns that I've written where I'm quoting him. But he he called. What is I know that? He well did. know it. Uh, I, I know he did. He called you know the Cold War and anti-communism the great exception. By which he meant that conservatism in America should be America first, isolationist, or non-interventionist. I'm not trying to be pejorative. I'm just, you know, Mm -hmm. Taftian. Descriptive. Right. And Mm -hmm. and and I don't and I think I've said this in front of Buchanan, so I don't think he would object. Pre-war Taftian. Right, exactly. And the necessity of fighting the the Cold War, the Soviet Union, the Cold War, the Twilight Struggle required a lot of what he would call traditional conservatives to put down their objections to militarization. You know, Russell Kirk hated the, the, the sort of industrialization and a military and, and, and conformity that came with having to mobilize for world war two. And he wanted, he voted for Norman Thomas. Right. Right. And he wanted massive mm-hmm. demobilization after war. And this is a perfectly venerable, I mean, I have my disagreements with it, but perfectly mm-hmm. venerable tradition. Absolutely. At the end of the cold war, that galvanizing thing that caused everyone to put aside a lot of minor differences or even major differences went by the wayside. Um, Pappy Cannon started writing books of, in favor of isolationism, saying that we have to return to what we were, you know, a republic no more, all those, you know. Um, he was a, it was a revisionist even on the Cold War. For sure. He ended he, up being a revisionist on World War II. Yes, there's a lot of charmly in him. Yeah. And, 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 and pardon the diversion, Jonah, but have you noticed in your life that anti-Lincoln people and anti-Churchill people tend to be the same people? Definitely, the Venn diagram has a lot of overlap, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, and Pat despises both of those men. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and then we saw briefly, you know, in the mid-2000s, 
people tried to make the war on terror and the war against Islamo-fascism, whatever label people want to come up with it, including to one extent or another, you and I. I mean, I'm not trying to mm -hmm. like say it was those craft, you know, those, you know, manipulators. No, no. Um, but it just it did not have the galvanizing uh power that that anti-communism, in part because the Islamic threat was not anything like a nuclear-armed Soviet Union. It was just it was just a different creature. Turned out to be a fairly short twilight struggle, if I may. That's right. And it wasn't the World War Four that our friend Norman Bedoritz thought it was. It was, you know, it was, it was what Could've it was. Could have been, but yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and so in the 30-odd years since the end of the Cold War, uh, foreign policy is just not a unifying thing mm -hmm. on Far the right. Far from it. It's, it's a divisive thing. Right. I mean, there's, there's a I think you could get a general consensus that there's you need a strong national defense, but then what you do yes. with it is is that's it, right? And even on Ukraine, even on Ukraine, and mm -hmm. um, and so you know the when you say that uh, that uh, that George Will says the first thing a conservative is is anti-left, um, I agree with that. To a certain extent, obviously, um, or to a large extent, obviously. But, you know, Irving Kristol, um, another one of her patron saints, um, used to talk about how there were, two, there were two strains on the right. One was anti-left and the other was anti-state. And he had very little interest ah. in being anti-state. Interesting. Um, I think, Our enemy of the state. That's right. He disliked <laughs> all that stuff. He, and that's mm -hmm. why, it was one of the reasons why he wasn't a libertarian and, and he had some interesting critiques of Hayek and whatnot. Yeah. But but the the sort of more standard fusionist, you know, Meyer uh, type approach is to say we're actually a little bit of both, and um, or we're a lot of both. But we understand that you know the worst is when the the left is using the state, and so you have certain issues that you have anti left people and anti state people on the same side of the issue until they win something and all of a sudden they get off right and so like you've seen the libertarians jump off the conservative bus for years now on all sorts of issues yeah i always you know think of the issue of like public schools and school choice where there are a lot of people who are for school choice because uh they hate the idea of government running schools the milton friedman stuff you know government run schools and then there are a bunch of people who don't mind public schools at all they just don't like the left running mm -hmm. schools yeah, and so they have. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm from a Guffey Readers for All. Yeah, right. I'm a, so, I'm, 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 I'm a straight reactionary. And yeah. so, like, for all, I know, you know, so for a lot of conservatives, it the ability to say that you just wanted to get rid of Roe because it was bad law and send it back to the state. Everyone used the language of the sanctity of life to one extent or another, but it's not obvious that they all really believed it. And so you see Ron DeSantis having a ban, keeping a 15 week. Cut off for abortions. You have uh, Glenn Youngkin trying to do that now. You have um, you have Chris Sununu in New Hampshire saying abortion is going to stay legal. All of a sudden, the thing that the umbrella that everyone could sit under was being against Roe yes. is gone. And yeah. I, you know, if if Clarence Thomas had written the majority opinion and said, and somehow could get a majority to do it, and said um, the Fourteenth Amendment guarantees a right to life. And so, therefore, abortion is banned in all 50 states. There are many of our friends, including maybe you, uh, who would cheer that, right? And there are many of our friends, including maybe you, I mean, I honestly don't know, mm -hmm. who yeah, would yeah. say... I'm not sure I know, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, that this is, <laughs> this is exactly the kind of judicial activism that we deplored when it came from the left. 
I would love to see what Ramesh would say because Ramesh is like the most fusionist on this stuff too because I think he hated Roe almost as much as he hates abortion. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I can see this he's really also a, fracturing. He's also a, a, a pragmatist in the realm of politics exactly. the way you and I are. That's yeah. right. That's right. And so um, I'm of the belief that a lot of our, a lot of the Republican politicians out there, you know, like DeSantis is the best case in point. Everyone th seems to think that he has mastered the cultural politics of the right these days and all that. And obviously to some extent that's true, but he's also a servant of it. I mean, the Twitter mob was not satisfied with, um, what, you know, with DeSantis's condemnation of Disney. They wanted a pound of flesh, right? They wanted him to, and I pound think of mouse flesh. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think DeSantis let the mob push him further than he wanted to go. And so it's interesting to me that he's stopping short of endorsing a ban when he could probably get anything he wanted through the Florida legislature. Anyway, I'm, I'm filibustering. Mm. I just think it's interesting. No, no. I think we're going to have all sorts of interesting new arguments out there in the way that we've had for the last 15 years about, about foreign policy. Uh, you are so right. Um, what can I say now? Um, there's uh, politics and there's, if you will, uh, right and wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, 15 weeks, 14 weeks, 16 weeks, it's all the same to me. I think it's, you know, utterly arbitrary. It's like trimesters. Um, but, you know, and then there's politics, uh, the art of the possible, all, all those cliches. And a thought occurred to me, as it has before, when you were speaking, Jonah, that um, one problem with us conservatives or conservatives like you and me is <laughs> we don't get to be dogmatic. In a way, it would be easier. You know, here's our, 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 our credo, um, you know, ce que je crois, or nous croyons. You know, this is, this is it. This is what we believe. And uh, conservatism, at least I would say traditionally or class, classically understood, is, is not dogmatic. Often it's not programmatic. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, Bill's little thing at the end of Up From Liberalism, his page, uh, sometimes that was referred to as Bill's program. Uh, but often conservatism can't even be programmatic. Uh, it's that you have to think. Um, and conservatism, as I understand it, is not really ideological. You have to think, which can be hard. And then you adjust. That is not to say you don't have overarching principles. I was thinking of a story a couple of days ago, which relates to our discussion, Jonah. I thought it was kind of cute. You may remember this, but someone wrote to Bill complaining, a, a lady wrote to, a longtime reader wrote to Bill complaining about him in National Review and said, you know, you're, you're, you're getting way too sophisticated and comp complicated uh, for me these days, Mr. Buckley. Uh, by the time I'm through reading you, uh, I can't tell whether you're for or against. <laughs> and he replied, oh, I'm so sorry, madam. We are against. <laughs> you know, sorry for the confusion, madam. We are against. And, and there's something deeply cons conservative about that quip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I would say we were, at least, we we're against initially till we can think about it longer and assess. Right. I mean, I want to argue with you about dogma, dogma being dogmatic in a second, but, um, oh, please. uh, this is, this is sort of related to my, argument you know i've had my fights with libertarians over the years i, I have I my know. friendships you know go back and forth and all this but uh i have argued for 25 years that that no policy making body of any sort in washington should make any decisions without a libertarian in the room 
Because the one thing you can always count on a libertarian to ask is, why are we doing this at all? And if you don't have an answer to that, you shouldn't be doing it. It's very Chesterton Spence, right? You know, like I, I, I am not a libertarian. <laughs> I have great respect for the libertarians. Great respect. Yes. And 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 I always listen to them. Yeah. They, they must always be in the mix. You are so right. I mean, it's, it's sort of like like if you can't if you can't answer a libertarian's questions, you shouldn't be in the policymaking business. Mm-hmm. And. Mm-hmm. Um, study harder and then come back and answer it. Yeah, I mean, it's yes, of, this is why we should be doing this. Or, or no, you happen to have a point, uh, Nick. <laughs> right. Uh, Ver- Vero. <laughs> uh, we, we, we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, you're, you're quite right. It's sort of like we have this attitude about, you know, the, on the business side of the dispatch is we got, we are, we're pretty passionate about the church state stuff and there are things that we don't want to do for principled reasons and all that. And, but we want business people who will, press the envelope, you know, asking for the moon to make money. And we just tell them, you know, look, if, if, if you're going to work here, you're just going to have to be comfortable with us saying no every now and then. And, but I don't want to blame them for, you know, trying to do everything they can to make money because it's a for-profit thing. Similarly, I don't, you know, like if, if, if you have a libertarian in the room, ideally, you know, they would win some arguments and some, and they would lose some arguments, but like, if you can't, if all you do is roll your eyes when someone says, so why is the government in charge of collecting your garbage? You know, like if you mm-hmm. don't have an answer for that, maybe the government mm-hmm. shouldn't be collecting your garbage mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. um, on the dogma point. Um, yeah. and again, this, this gets back to, uh, sort of label quibbles, but you're one of the only other people I know who yeah. enjoys <laughs> label quibbles. <laughs> quibbles is us. Um, <laughs> Um, and, and I should, I should just note for readers when, when the issue of labels, ideological labels comes up, I often quote Jay because Jay was, grew exasperated even 20 years ago. You say you don't like euphemisms and all that stuff now, uh, with, are you this kind of conservative? Are you that kind of conservative? And, uh, and you're cutting through the Gordian knot by just saying I'm a Reaganite is very helpful. Thank you, Jonah. Before I get to the dogma, do you mind if I add to that? Sure. One reason I said that was out of respect for the other conservatives. Right. And I didn't want to monopolize the term. And I'll say this very briefly because it's sort of a long and interesting story. Mike Deaver edited a book called Why I Am a Conservative, and he asked me to contribute to it. And I wrote a piece. At the top, I said, I'll tell you why I'm a Reagan conservative. Because I, you know, it, it would be dumb to exclude the, the Kirkians, you know, mm-hmm. who arguably have a better claim to the label. When the, but when the anthology came out, it had been retitled, Why I Am a Reagan Conservative. And I don't know that that was because of me. I suspect it was. I never asked. Uh, but anyway, yes, Reaganite, please. Yeah. So, go ahead on dog. Go ahead on dog. So, you see, I, I, dogmatic is one of these words that, is it's sort of like one of my great gripes is as, as listeners of this podcast know is that philosophical pragmatism is one of the only philosophical schools that has an everyday word associated with it that has a positive connotation in and of itself like oh. no one ever says Look, I got. He sucks. He's pragmatic. Well, or, or, or no one ever <laughs> yeah. says, you know, look, I got to, I, I, you know, the this credit card is past due for two months. 
I got to be existentialist about this and pay that one, right? But like, <laughs> um, or I got to be Socratic yeah. about it. I mean, Socratic has a little bit of a positive, but you know what I mean? Anyway, so similarly, dogmatic has a negative connotation because it means closed-minded in real life, right? Yeah. And so in that sense, I agree with you that conservatives <laughs> People are, don't like the popular use of the word medieval. Right. You know, some people say, I'm about to go medieval on your ass. You know, and just, and oh, the medieval period was great. And Hildegard of Bingen. And, you know, the, you know, you know. <laughs> um, yes, right. So, like, that, this is one of these problems where it's it's the, 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 yeah, I get ver- you. the vernacular I totally meaning. I you. But, but the, or how about, like, the word propaganda is really a neutral term, isn't it? Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it begins with the Catholic Church trying to propagate the faith. Um, mm. But, uh, so... I agree with you that conservatives shouldn't be closed-minded. But one of the things, I'm a big pro-dogma guy. I'm a big pro-Chesterton's take on dogma. Um, I believe that, you know, first of all, dogma, that one of the things that I think makes, one of the reasons why I'm a conservative, conservative and I prefer it to progressivism is that conservatives admit their dogma. Like, we just, we, we admit we have certain moral dogmas and that we base our approach to politics and philosophy based upon these dogmas. And so... But, Jonah, people who call themselves the C-word agree on so little. Yeah, but... Well, let me, let me, let's pretend we're talking in 2014, before the, <laughs> okay. before the troubles. Um, uh, let me change my clothes. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me sit up straighter. Uh, let me shave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let me, like marvel at the fact that I'm talking into my computer. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, So my point is, is that, you know, if you read the What is Conservatism anthology, you know, which goes by, you know, different names, the the one that Hayek and Buckley and all these guys contributed to, um, it's very clear that, um, uh, um, you know, there are, there are, it's sort of like this anti-left, anti-state thing. Conservatives are um uh very much committed to the that that order is necessary and they're very much committed to the idea that liberty is necessary that freedom is necessary and virtue is necessary these are among our dogmatic positions and one of the things about being a conservative is you recognize that these things are intention and that at some point you take one principle too far and it intrudes too far into another principle and that's why conservatives are constantly trying to sort of um figure out where the trade-offs are this is you know very tom soul you know, point about how um, part of being a conservative is having the constrained vision where you understand that um, mm. there are trade-offs in life and that, you know, good things can come at the expense of other good things. Part of my problem with progressivism is it acknowledges no dogma, in part because of philosophical pragmatism, and it's it seems to think that all good things can go together. And, and so when people tell me if I want to be puckish and play with the interns or the college kids, um, they say, well, you know, I'm not dogmatic. And I'm like, okay, so you think we should have a live debate about whether we should bring back slavery? Um, do you think we should have a live, live debate about, you know, whether the Holocaust happened or not? Part of being a conservative is understanding that there are certain closed questions. Well, I see what you mean. That, that's, yeah, that's different from what I meant. I know it is. And that's and, why and, I was... and Bill, Bill, Bill liked to quote, the purpose of an open mind is to close it on some questions. Uh, and, and someone said it might have been William Sloan Coffin, I think, said in some debate, um, uh, there are no final answers or no absolutes or something like that. And, and, and Bill said, how about the superiority of democracy over, as Bill would say, Nazism? 
Right. Yeah, that sort of thing. I, I, sure, I see what you mean. Yeah, and yeah. so I like, I, like you know, I've had these debates with our our, our colleague, um, Charlie Cook. You know, where he he thinks there's nothing wrong. He's such a free speech ab- absolutist. He thinks there's absolutely nothing wrong with like, you know, engaging with Holocaust denial. And I'm not saying Charlie is in no way sympathetic to Holocaust denial, but my view is. No, like no, th- no, thank you. No, like th- there, not th- even thank you. Yeah, some you know, it, as Bill put it in, and actually, I believe it's in that 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 what is conservatism collection. You know, he's talking about the importance of dogma, and uh, borrowing from Chesterton, he says, "We know that the purely rational man, uh, the purely rational soldier, will not fight. The purely rational man will not marry. Um, you need certain senses of dogma, dogmatic commitment to certain notions of the higher good to have a civilization. And, you know, there's a grand tradition in the sort of the, the shock, the bourgeoisie tradition going all the way back of, you know, liking to revisit or defend taboo things. And I like taboos. I like the idea that like, it is taboo to have sex with animals. And I don't want to have a conversation about why that's closed-minded. My mind mm-hmm. is closed on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, same thing about pedophilia. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to like have, you know, like bring this up for debate. This mm-hmm. is one of these things that mm-hmm. is just simply supposed to be a closed subject. And those are the things that I think fall rightly under the concept of dogma, which is different than being dogmatic in the sense that you meant it. I but see. my understanding from the Greek is that dogma simply means that which seems good, that which you take for granted. You know, yes, I am. Um, interesting question about the purity of words. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't like you to use the word decimate because it means one in ten. Mm-hmm. To which my response is, come on, come the hell on, you know. Oh, Shakespeare didn't say gild the lily. He said, you know, to paint the lily or to gild refined gold. Come on, come on. Um, yeah, I go back so, and forth about yeah. this. I, 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 I'm with you on decimate. I used to fight that fight. So here's my, so you're basically taking the McWhorter position, you know, John McWhorter, um, mm-hmm. who I have nothing but reverence and respect for. I think he's a brilliant guy. And um, I love reading him and, and listening to his podcast and whatnot. And I had him on once. But like there's a, he's one of the, I believe, I don't want to mischaracterize him, but I believe he's one of the leaders of the movement to say, it's fine to say literally when you mean figuratively, uh, you know, the way Joe Biden will say, I'm not, you know, not with him on that one. Yeah, no. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and so, but I, cause you need the word literally. That is my uh, point. You, you right? need it. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. so this is my point. Is I'm that for there more are, words, not fewer words. Yeah. There are certain words. Like I get why you have meaning creep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. But, like, and I'm fine with the sort of poetic meaning creep. Have fun with words, by all means. I do it all the time. But if we lose the, the meaning of certain words that are necessary to communicate better, we're losing something beautiful and important. You're singing my song, baby. There used to be a difference between healthy and healthful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so healthful's by the boards now and everything is healthy. But it was a good difference. Right. A healthy meant a state of health, and healthful meant conducive to health, like broccoli or something. And people use envy and jealousy interchangeably. Right. Fine. But the distinction is really, it just makes life, including the life of the mind, more interesting. And it makes expression more interesting. 
No, I agree. I, the, the, so I'm for the addition of words rather than the subtraction of words. So you'll like this. Yeah. I mean, you're so much better at this than I am about like bringing up little stories to like illustrate a point. I wish I did it better and more. But um, my wife, the fair Jessica, she wrote speeches for John Ashcroft back when he was attorney general. And you know what word he never allowed to appear in any of his speeches or any of his prepared remarks of any kind? Hmm. Proud. Because pro- <gasps> pride oh, is a sin. I love that. I love that. Yes, yes. And it's amazing how much... I mean, we like, could use more humility and less pride. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, like, I get where what, what people mean by pride is not the egotism that yes. is applied by the seven sins, yes. but it'd be good if we yeah. had that word, right? Because mm-hmm. now we've psycholog- psychologized everything. And so we use words like narcissism, which don't really get at it in the same way. You know, I, I wish we had l- access to more language of sin. I mean, I'm not a very religious person, but like there's something lost when you don't have access to the, the power of, 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 of those kinds of words and you reduce everything down to sort of psychological motivations. Mm-hmm. We're recording this on Tuesday and there's going to be a, we're supposed to be on hiatus from the January 6th hearings, but, um, the, not this podcast, like the hearings themselves. And, uh, um, but there's going to be an emergency or a surprise session today at one o'clock. So we don't know yes. exactly what will happen there. Although it has been confirmed that it was this aid, can't remember her name to Mark Meadows who yes. will be speaking. Uh-huh. What is your you and I, let's put it bluntly, we're largely on we were largely on the same page for the last seven years about the Trump candidacy and the Trump presidency. Um I'm trying to think of an issue on which I've disagreed with you since the earlier mid-90s. I'm sure if we thought hard enough, but anyway, keep going. Um what do you make of the the hearings? Um, are you, I'm glad that this committee was constituted. I think they're doing a a public service and they're establishing a record. Not everyone will accept the findings, same as the Warren commission. I would have preferred, uh, an independent commission on the order of the nine 11 commission. Every member of the congressional committee or the select committee, every single one voted for an independent commission and would have preferred it. But Republicans in the Senate succeeded in killing it, passed the House, including with 35 Republican votes. Those Republicans were bucking their leadership in the House. Uh, I would have preferred an independent commission, uh, each party selecting five private citizens to compose the panel. But Republicans stopped it. They couldn't. They did not succeed in stopping this other. And uh, I think the committee has done useful work uh, to gather. Uh, verifiable uh, facts, if that's not a redundancy, you know, in one place. And as I keep saying, what has indicted and damned Trump and his team is Republican testimony mm-hmm. uh, and video evidence. Not the Democrats on the committee, not the hated Cheney and Kinsinger, Kinsinger, excuse me. Trump and his people are in trouble or ought to be because of what Trump staffers have said. Trump cabinet officials have said, what the video evidence shows. So I would ask people, I mean, I really wouldn't because I wouldn't ask them anything, but just theoretically, ignore all the Democrats, ignore Cheney and Kinsinger. Listen to the Trump staffers. Uh Listen to William Barr. Look at the video. This is a bill word. Gainsay it if you can. (laughs) Yeah. 
gainsay it. If I'm all ears. I am all ears. Same with these court challenges, the 60-plus that the Trump people did. All ears. Let's hear it. Instead, you get crickets when it comes to evidence or facts. You get bombast and lies. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to me how the smartest critics of the January 6th committee that I, that I see on Fox, um, they basically stipulate that the testimony is compelling that what Trump did on January 6th was terrible. And then they pivot very quickly to, um, this is bad process. <laughs> Hunter's laptop. Yeah. You know, or, uh, like I, like uh, I'm, I'm talking about the, the people I actually respect, <laughs> rather uh-huh. than, you know, like, mm-hmm. it, right. And, um, and here's the thing. They wanted nothing, no impeachment, no conviction, right. no independent commission, no select committee. They wanted nothing. Well, to heck with that. Right. Right. You know, I'm all for moving on. Big move on guy, but preceded by accountability. See, that's that's the thing. It's like uh, and I know you remember this well, the whole move on dot org, move on we're, movement after we're, we're reliving it. From people, the other side. Yeah. people forget that. As much as I detested a lot of the people associated with the move on crowd, because um, I thought they were lying when they were talking about how they were apolitical and they just wanted to move on from this one thing. Uh, essential to their argument was Bill Clinton admitted it. He's apologized. You should censure him. And then let's move on. Right. That was I, what the original. I, I press forgot was. about that part. Yeah. But... And um, I went back and looked for a column recently and. How interesting. And like, that's the thing is like, if, if, if you apologize, like if if I say to you, um, let's move on. And you say, Jonah, you just kicked me in the groin and I asked you to apologize. And I say, come on, Jay, are we really going to be hung up on this? Let's just move on. No, no, no. I want you to apologize. <laughs> and then we can, you know, like... Let me just limp on. <laughs> yeah. There, oh, no. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a difference morally in an argument saying, you know, we, we know the facts. He's admitted them. He's apologized. We should censure. We should criticize him. But let's skip impeachment and just move on to he did nothing wrong, right? And this is always our, our friend and colleague Andy McCarthy's argument about how badly Trump handled the first impeachment was he, rather than say, ah, I can understand why my critics didn't like the phone call, but I didn't have any bad intent. And what, you know, and I, I take your point. I made a mistake, blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm sorry, but let's move on. Right. That that, would have been one thing. No, that wouldn't have been true though. Of course it would be a lie. I agree. But politically Uh it would have been more in his interest than to say the phone call was perfect. I did nothing wrong. This is a witch hunt because that leaves the people with the facts on their side, no place to go other than full bore to sort of getting the truth of things. And it would be so much easier for the house freedom caucus hacks and all those people. If, if Trump would admit some fault, but he can't do it. His biggest fans will never allow him to do it. He actually brags about how he'll never out, how he never apologizes for anything. And so it forces, it has this polarizing effect of forcing people to take, to either deny anything happening, you know, just to lie about reality in ways that just, that guarantee people won't drop it, you know, and nor, nor do I think they should. Um, so do you think Trump's going to run again? You use the word think. Do I think? 
I don't know. I, because I don't think he can play this card. If he loses again, I don't think he can do the rigged thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think he can do the hoax thing. Uh, I, I think he couldn't stand losing and wanted to plant the, the lie in the minds of tens of millions that he didn't really lose out of vanity and ego. I don't think he can pull, I don't, I don't know that he would want to risk losing. I don't know. Do you? I don't know. And I, I, my standard answer to this question is I don't think Trump knows. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, this is a guy who used to say his net worth depended upon how he felt about himself when he woke up. He makes decisions at the last second uh, in a mercurial, you know, uh, hormonal kind of way. And so the idea that he's going to, I think he wants to keep all his options open for sure, in part because he's still, ra he can raise so much money by looking like he's going to run and he can get more people to kowtow um, to him, um, um, a good Chinese word, uh, um, the longer he drags this out. And I do think if it were a coronation, if the nomination were a coronation, he would go for it, which is why I very much think that it would be as, as much as I have problems with a lot of Republicans, um, these days, it would be a good thing if Tom Cotton, Ron DeSantis, a few others announced that they're going to run regardless of whether Trump runs. Um, it would be a really good thing if a whole bunch of Republicans in Congress immediately started endorsing various other Republican candidates, you know, whether it's Ted Cruz or, or DeSantis or whoever, I don't really care. But just to make it look like it would be work for Trump would be, I think, extremely valuable, in part because he's a bully. And if he knows that people are going to stand up to him. Um, uh, a little late, but okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look, yeah, mm. I'm not saying I, there's no more. No, I got you. We're, we're doing rank punditry. I got you. Rank I got you. Yeah. Uh, I got you. Yeah. Um, so I asked this of a lot of guests. I haven't asked in a while. I get a lot of blowback from people saying this is what Republicans were like all along. This is what all these people were like all along. Yeah, it's not true. And it's just it's not, not my experience. It's really not. I, you know, I did too much stuff with the Tea Party. I've been on too many National Review cruises for 20 years. I adored the Tea Party. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. At least in the beginning. It, it got hijacked by some grifter types, you know, halfway in. But in the I beginning. I guess I stopped paying attention at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a genuine constitutionalist movement. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, or at least big chunks of it were, right? I mean, like, mm -hmm. there were just some sincere, decent people involved with it. And Yeah, you know, regular order in Congress, balanced budget, all that stuff. Living within our means. Uh -huh. What is your theory of the case about, I know you had to have thought about this because you have, must have gone through the same, am I taking crazy pills feelings for the last, you know, half decade. Um, what is your theory of the case? Just last, last night, I saw Carrie Lake, this gov this candidate for governor of Arizona, mm. laying into Brett Baer about how he was afraid to cover Dinesh D'Souza's 2,000 mules, and of course, this election was stolen in Arizona, and Rusty Bowers is a liar, and yada, yada, yada. And um, and she's speaking for a real constituency in, in Arizona mm. and the Republican Party. What, what do you think happened? I think that um, some people changed uh, th th this is such a big topic i know i know uh, there's th th there's an old saying that um uh that trying times or challenging times don't shape character they reveal character 
um, that I think in the early 70s, there was a setup of the U.S. Open Golf Open that was ridiculously hard. Might have been in Oakland Hills, at, at Oakland Hills in Michigan. Uh, I, I'm not sure, but very, very hard. I think Jack Nicklaus, you know, putted, uh, putted a ball off the green. And someone said to, to, to Sandy Tatum, the relative U.S. Golf Association official who'd been in charge of setting up the course, are you trying to embarrass the best players in the world? <laughs> he said, no, identify them. <laughs> uh, so th- there's, there's an element, uh, but I think, it, it's funny, Jen, this isn't really the essence of your question, and I guess I'm just stalling. Some people, when they switch their views from conservatism to other isms, and, and then people often change their minds and change their views, it's funny, their, 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 their personalities changed as well. Mm-hmm. Their, 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 very, their, their, their modes of expression and comportment. Marco Rubio is, did a real Mr. Hyde thing. Um, he's just, just in the way he conducts himself and the way he speaks, he just seems to be a different animal mm-hmm. from, from the Marco of, of, of yore. Jonah, you're an expert on this. I, if I may, uh, am an expert on this. I find it hard to spit it out. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm feeling very unsoundbitey on this question. I've written hundreds of thousands of words on it, and uh, I find that I'm I'm a, a, a lousy crystallizer and and distiller at the moment. That's fine. Um, uh, w- w- it, was it always a lie? No. Right. It was a lie on the part of some. Right. I think. I also think that the generally li- the genuinely liberal mind, classically liberal mind, is very very rare. I think it seems to me that most people are status or even authoritarians at heart. Uh, they want power. They want control. Be that control of a pink hue or a brown hue, a red hue or a black hue. Uh, I think that, um, I don't know, I, there are days I feel gloomier than other days. There are some days when I think that Reagan conservatives could probably fill a few booths at Denny's Mm-hmm. I've given you a lousy, lousy, no, lousy I, I, answer. I'm it's been so what, long what, since... What, what, what's my theory of the case? I, it, it's been so long since I've asked people about this that uh, I probably did it too open-endedly. Because I agree with you. It is, it is not a single phenomenon, you know, and, and one of my great... It's like on the Remnant bingo card, you know, one of my great obsessions is rejecting all monocausal explanations of things because most most complicated and serious things have a lot of different complementary um, explanations for them, you know. Um, and, you know, the example I always used to give is if you, I used to get asked the question all the time, you know, why are Jews liberal? And I can give you 10 different reasons. And there, there are a hundred, one, any one of them, like number seven would be entirely true for my yes. uncle in New Jersey and not at all true for John Pedortz's aunt in you know, in Minnesota or whatever. And that, for a no, lo- no, Norman wrote a book of, with that very title. That's right. Um, I, which I, look, I, I, I take a backseat to no one and my love and admiration for Norman. I, I think that book could have been done better differently if it didn't have so mm-hmm. much of the author yeah. in it. Yeah. 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 Um, Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. But my only point is, is that, that it's, it's, it's what social scientists call an overdetermined phenomenon. There are just too many factors leading to the, to it. Like what caused World War One? Well, you can say the assassination of Gavril Princip in ten seconds, or you can write ten books trying to explain it. You know, but you can't. It's very difficult to do anything in between. Um, and so I think that part of it is 
a question about specific personalities that we know personally. We don't want yeah. to sound embittered or anything, so we don't need to get too deep in the weeds on that. It's but they're, a very small pond. But there, yeah. there are a handful of people that we thought saw the world the same way we more or less did, broadly defined. And then yeah. when the circumstances changed, you know, there go the people. I must go with them, for I am their leader. They changed with 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 the base. And then you know, there's the I, I think part of, and it's only a partial explanation. Um, part of what happened is I, I've become more and more sympathetic to a lot of evolutionary psychology. And um, I think that there is something deep within most people that, including me, right? But like uh, that if you've decided that somebody is your leader, you the cannot... The of the tribe is yeah, amazing. You cannot tolerate the idea that they're a bad person. And so the cognitive dissonance of having a bad person, and I think by any objective measure, any serious objective measure, Donald Trump is a bad person, a person of bad character. You either have to maintain the, the moral yardstick, the characterological yardstick that you maintain for most of your life, by, and then find that Trump comes up short, um, or you start sawing and bending the yardstick to fit the man. And I think that's what a lot of people ended up doing. It's, it's interesting. Steve Tellers, in his book about the anti-Trump movement, um, he has a really interesting insight that the people who, as a group in the sort of our world, the related tribe of the sort of called the 12 tribes of conservatism, the one that maintained its soul the best as a group, we're not talking about individuals, were the Federalist Society types. And part of his explanation for this is that lawyers by training and vocation have, and particularly the Federalist Society, are accustomed to rationalizing their relationships with clients who are bad people and, um, and, and fighting for procedural ends or larger meta-justice kind of ends. And so for the Federalist Society types to say it's a transactional relationship with Donald Trump um, they knew how to say, but we disagree with him about this other stuff in ways that come to conservatism from a, a more righteous, moralistic way. Like you can't tolerate the idea that, that our leader, our savior, um, is a bad person. And so you had all these people who were telling me it's a transactional thing and blah, 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 blah. You don't have to endorse everything. Is he perfect? No, blah, 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 blah. Four years in, they were saying he's perfect and he's great exactly. because they had to reconcile the cognitive dissonance of it. And some of our friends on the pro-life side um, are really annoying me these days because they're attacking mostly David French <laughs> as, the, as is their want and uh, as is their obsession and telling and saying, how dare you celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade? This is something that we did by supporting Donald Trump and that it wouldn't have happened without you. And, uh, it wouldn't happen if we had done what you wanted and all that. And put aside all of the different problems I have with all of that. If any of those people had spent the four years of the Trump's, Trump presidency saying, look, he's a scummy guy, but he's going to get rid of, he's going to help us get rid of Roe v. Wade. Um, so I'm going to reluctantly support him. I would have a lot more respect for that argument. But those people 
we're not going on television every day and writing pieces every day about what a glorious and heroic leader Donald Trump was because it was a part of the transaction of getting Supreme Court justices on. They've joined the cult. And now this is post hoc, you know, retroactive rationalization um, that doesn't actually explain their own behavior during all those years. Jonah, I have a point, a question, and a story. Uh, here's the point. Uh, Trump is one thing, Trumpism another. Trumpism is really the big problem in my book. Yeah. Here's the story. A friend of mine, a friend of ours, a kind of conservative celebrity, gave a talk, uh, a keynote address at some conservative function, fundraising thing. And a woman came up to him and said, oh, good to see you. And I know you through National Review, maybe a cruise. Oh, yes, said our friend. Uh, I love National Review. Uh, the woman said, so do I. All except Jay Nordlinger. <laughs> but, uh, oh, really, said our friend. Yes, you know, I used to admire him so much. And we corresponded. And he was such a great guy. But he's changed completely. Our friend said, well, madam, it, it seems to me that he's one of the few who have not changed. He's the same kind of conservative he always was for this reason, that reason, you know, size of government, taxation, foreign policy, a devotion to high culture, all this stuff. That he's one of the very few who haven't changed at all. The lady said, yes, but when the rest of us changed, he didn't. Therefore, he is the one who changed. <laughs> and our friend said, who, who's British, said, uh, Madam, I cannot argue with that. <laughs> Here's my question, and I'll always defend this or cling to it. I believe Sarah Palin is someone you know. Mm -hmm. I absolutely loved her in 08. The attacks on her, I, I felt personally in almost a physical way, they made me sick. I admired her. I adored her. I believe something happened. And that she changed after her resignation of the governorship and, you know, this great celebrity and, and Fox News and all that. I don't believe I was wrong at all to love and admire her in 08. At all. I think she became something else. And it, it distressed me. But I don't think I misread her or misjudged her at all. Because I followed that campaign Tick by tick. And I'll tell you something that John McCain told me. And uh, I, 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 I have a, a podcast, and I think he was my, my second guest uh, some years ago. He said he would always defend Sarah Palin. Always. And, and he gave me a very blunt interview on all questions. So this wasn't you know, something politically correct. He said she was marvelous and I admired her and I'm glad she was my running mate. Anyway, so I am done with that. Comment on it if you want. So, all right. So, uh, I don't know Sarah Palin very well. You know, met her a few times. My wife wrote her second book. Um, my wife, as you know, is from Alaska. Uh, I saw Sarah Palin give a speech on a Hillsdale <laughs> um, cruise. Uh, I believe it was Hillsdale. And, um, was very impressed with her. My wife was extremely impressed with her. This is 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. And um, in part because what Palin was doing was saying some really controversial things for an Alaskan Republican governor about how Alaska was uh, basically a, 
a libertarian welfare state, that the oil companies basically controlled the legislature, you know, all this kind of stuff that was taboo um, for a Republican up there. And it was impressive. And she was talking about how, you know, Alaska needed to, you know, get its house in order. She really earned the word maverick. She was smart about it. She Mm -hmm. did. And so uh, I'm not sure I was as in love with her throughout 2008 as you were, because I think, Mm -hmm. so here's, I'll use Palin as an example of this, but it might be at the margins unfair directly. Also, about I was a fierce partisan. Remember, I was sure. just a, I was I was the most Republican Republican you ever met. Yeah, I've probably written five, ten columns on this, but like one of mm. my greatest peeves going back twenty years um, is with politicians who have that charismatic connection with audiences, with the public, who don't do their homework because. To me, doing your homework, just knowing the issues, knowing the detail, reading your briefing book is a fundamental patriotic obligation if you are going to and just doing the due diligence, right? Just uh, if you're going to run for Congress or governor or senator, never mind president, you know, it's very easy to know the issues. You just got to read some stuff it's, it's, or talk to some aides for a little bit. It's knowable. It's doable. Um, Mitt Romney did his homework. He did not have that charismatic connection with the public. If you could, if it, that could be bought, Mitt Romney would have bought it, right? But you just can't buy that. Sarah Palin had it. Rick Perry had it for a while. Um, uh, Fred Thompson had it. Uh, you, know, you can go through this list of, of people who had these booms, um, and it was all based upon this indefinable je ne sais quoi kind of like just connection that they had being able to sort of tap into the, 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 the souls or the ids of, of, of the crowd. And, um, and Sarah Palin was definitely, and the it girl is a way, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, oh. uh, for the right for a bit there. And my complaint about her was she stopped doing her homework. When she was governor, she did the due diligence. And then, and so this is my explanation for a lot of people is TV and fame are inherently corrupting and some people, and they're also addictive and some people have higher degree. I'm not trying to brag, but like I have higher degree of immunity to it because I really, I've turned down opportunities to be much bigger TV person than I've been. And like, I, 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 I could stop doing TV tomorrow and I think I'd be fine. And, but there are other people, if they stop being on TV, if they stop being recognized in airports, it would be an existential crisis for them, a fundamental crisis for them. And they live off of that. And I think that what Sarah Palin got essentially corrupted by, and it changed her, was the sudden celebrity of it. Um, There was some guy, there's some story, I don't want to disparage anybody, so I'll do it in very general terms, was some firefighter who, maybe from Oklahoma City, who was a hero, maybe it was not, I can't remember what, who was a super celebrity for six months, you know, sort of like Sully Sullivan and appeared on everywhere. And then, you know, the phone stopped ringing and the camera stopped coming and no one asked for comment. And I, again, I, I, I could be butchering this, but I'm, I remember talking about this a lot back, you know, 10 years ago. And the guy committed suicide because like he'd become addicted to having his whole, sort of, the hole in his soul filled up by this stuff. And I don't even know that he had a hole in his soul prior to the fame. You know, it, sometimes to be filled with that sense of self-satisfaction that fame and celebrity gives you, it first has to burrow into your soul and create a hole there. Yes. And 
And so there's so many people who are green room addicted. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, I think a big part of it, other than sort of just having a pickled brain, became obsessed with being in the limelight and being part of all of this kind of stuff. There are a bunch of these people who got addicted to their audiences and then could not publicly disagree with their audiences until the process of rationalization became so powerful that they ended up agreeing with their audiences. I think that's a big part of it, at least of a lot of the personalities that you and I would talk about off, you know, off mic. Jonah, about Rudy, this is a horrible way to put it, but if he had been hit by a bus in 2002, let me put it more nicely, if he had ascended <laughs> right. in, in, in 2002, I think he'd be one of the great heroes of government of our time. For sure. Yeah, no, it's like, what, isn't that a paraphrase of the line about Napoleon, that if he had been hit by a cannonball on the way into Russia, he would be remembered as one of the greatest liberators and conquerors oh, in, in human history? In, interesting, <laughs> I hadn't heard I that. think it's yeah. something like that. Some listener and, will correct me, but I think it's And boy, like when you hear the roar of the crowd, it's very hard to give up, and it's very hard to contradict the crowd. And I saw John Cornyn down in Texas at the Texas GOP convention uh, state GOP convention, uh, absorbing and enduring booze. And I thought that's good. You know, that's good for character because uh, people just, we all love applause and appreciation, but sometimes you have to contradict and disappoint the crowd. Uh, Henry Hyde used to give a speech to incoming freshmen, GOP freshmen in the House. And he said, please decide right now, and this would be in late November, what you're willing to lose your seat over. Decide right now. Yeah. It'll make all sorts of difference. Yeah. You know, and it, it's one thing for politicians to pander, uh, to ingratiate themselves with the crowd. And ingratiation is a big part of politics, you know. But still, even as a politician, you have to take a stand. But when it comes to writers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when, uh, when it comes to people in the media, one of the things I most regret about this uh, current era is the blurring of the lines between politics and journalism. Uh, people cultivate constituencies. They have applause lines. They, they act like politicians. Mm -hmm. As someone said to me once, I guess on Twitter, um, don't you know you've just insulted millions of people? I'm sitting there thinking, so? Right. Yeah. yeah. But, but it, it's, um, you know, not that um, I think that people pleasing can be a very, very good thing. You know, I don't wake up in the morning saying, and how can I displease people? That would be sort of lousy. But sometimes you have to. Sometimes you have to. And you mentioned yeah, your, your co-worker, our colleague, David French. My goodness. Well, that, 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 that's, as we'd say in my native Michigan, that's a whole nother yeah. uh, discussion. And the same applies to you, babe. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, that's enough of that. All right, my friend, we've gone well past the hour mark. On. Um, yes. I would, um, I, will, uh, I would love to have you back. Um, because it's very easy to talk to you and ramble on. And I will at some point remember my, I was going to say the secret word, my word question. It's driving me. I just, it's going to come to me in a dream and I'm going like, to scream bloody murder about it. Um, Greece is the word, by the way, I, I, I know you, you veer much more towards classical and opera and whatnot, but because of a, you know, Iowa Hawk, um uh yes yeah. uh -huh. he had a tweet the other day that um uh I, I may be butchering the butchering the anecdote but that frank sinatra had trini lopez killed off as a character early in the dirty dozen 
because he needed him back in the studio um, <laughs> to record something. <laughs> and then he added in a subsequent tweet that Trini Lopez, Trini Lopez's uh, electric guitar version of I Had a Hammer and was one of the things that inspired Bob Dylan to uh, move to electric, which I thought was interesting. And I was like, I don't know that I could name a Trini Lopez song. I mean, I know who he was, but I couldn't name one off the top of my head. So I've been on a Trini Lopez kick for the last 48 hours, singing Lemon Tree and other things to myself. <laughs> and uh, um, I don't know why I felt like telling you this, but you're like... Well, maybe because grease is the word. We're yeah, thinking about that's music what put and, in my head, yeah, yeah. And if I had a hammer, I can't remember, the, did I do this at the Standard? Or I think Michael Kinsley might have done it at the New Republic. But I think there is a, sort of an anti-folk music piece, which you have to hear the italics. I think Kinsley titled, If I Had a Hammer. Yeah. Listen, I can't remember the song, so I'm not anti the song. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. That's as, as, as Jamie Kirchick says, that's, that's the, maybe the one thing that Ron Radoff retained from commie days, love of folk music. For sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, there are certain people who, you know, what, what I, I miss, I misattributed it to, to, to Monty Python when it was from Faulty Towers, the whole don't mention the war thing. Uh, there are certain people who, and that you sometimes find out have obsessions hmm. that an hour later of conversation, <laughs> you regret bringing up the subject. And hmm. uh, like Ron Radosh knows everything there is to know about Bob Dylan. Um, and oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, the, the late problematic Joe Sobrin and mentioning Shakespeare and uh -oh. his authorship, yeah. you know, it was like, oh, yeah. yeah. I never met Sobrin. I just, I, he's one of those people who has one of those kinds of obsessions. Um, James Rosen, if you talk to him about John Dean's role in Watergate, um, you should bring a thermos because it's going to be a lot. <laughs> it's going to be a while. Um, loved your um, recent column on Dean. Yeah. All right, so I'm just trying to cling to the conversation, but we should really go because we're coming up on an hour and a half here. And um, and uh, as euphonious as you may be. Do you have a favorite band or singer? <sighs> Almost made a clean getaway. Um, <laughs> um, favorite band or singer? Uh, you know? Give me one of the tops. One of the yeah, tops. Yeah, no, like, I'm a sort of a classic rock guy. I like, you know, I really like The Who. I like The Kinks, all that. Um, I was never as into The Rolling Stones as people told me I was supposed to be. Um, in the 80s, I was a product of 80s music. I liked Blondie and Billy Joel and all of that. I know much to your regret and to my father's regret, I never got into opera despite my... Appearing at the Metropolitan Yeah, opera. I was in several operas at the Met, and my dad listened to opera daily in the house. It filled my house. Um, I remember, you know, like... Every time I hear the name Zubin Mehta, I think back to running around <laughs> and playing with Lego because it was always one of these names that was dropped on the radio um, my dad listened to. Speaking of you in the 80s, Joan, I'm looking out my window, looking north up Broadway, and I can almost see 84th Street. Is that right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And nice. I remember we invited your mom and dad over to dinner one night, and, um, and your mother replied in an email, um, Throw another haunch on the fire. We're coming over. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like her. All right. We're done. We're gonna, we gotta, we're done. We got to pull out of this thing. All um, right. Hard out, baby. Jay Norrier, thank you for coming on, and uh, I hope to have you back. Okay. So uh, Jay has left the studio, and um, uh, 
my apologies to people who like very linear, organized conversations that start from a proposition, build, and then go on to the next topic. Um, if you're out there right now cutting yourself or cleaning up the mess from cutting yourself, I apologize. But uh, that was as close to a authentic version of most long conversations I have had with Jay over the last 25 years where you start talking about something serious and then one of us uses, uh, drops a, a landmine word that triggers the other one and it'll be five minutes of, of quibbling about whether or not decimate means killing everyone in 10 or um, just means to destroy. Uh, it's great to have him on. I am truly embarrassed and ashamed I haven't had him on before. I was talking to him beforehand. Um, I think it's because I had been on his podcast and I somehow misremembered it as him being on mine. Um, uh, the next episode, should everything hold tight, we're having, uh, I, I rarely do this, but I know people will be excited, having the, uh, the, the great Megan McArdle back on The Remnant. Looking forward to that. And by the time you listen to this, you'll have missed it, but we're doing a Dispatch Live tonight. Um, if you were a member, you could always watch the video later. Um, we're getting the, we're getting the, the band back together as it were, uh, me, Steve, Sarah, and David, which is something we haven't done a dispatch live like that in over a month, maybe a month and a half, um, should be interesting given all the developments and maybe you can catch up on it or maybe you can become a member of the dispatch and you would have been notified about this this morning, um, or tomorrow morning. And you would know to tune in. But now you just, if you're not a member of the dispatch, it's just, it's a tree falling in the woods. So with that, uh, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Podcast.